We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is considered one of the best defensive catchers of all time. In the last 50 years, only 14 men have caught more games. And over his career, he worked with 16 Cy Young Award winners. In the pre-wildcard era, his teams went to the playoffs three times, and they made the World Series each time. They won two, and he was the MVP of one in 1983 with the Baltimore Orioles. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Rick Dempsey. Rick, welcome. Well, thanks, Rich. <laughs> That's quite an introduction right there. That was longer than anybody said anything to me about baseball in the last two or three years. That's for sure. So I'm excited <laughs> about it. <laughs> That's good. Well, you earned it, right? Um so, 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 Rick, you know, what I like to do is usually just kind of start off talking a little bit about childhood and the high school years, you know, get, you know, a little bit of background. I see that you were born in Tennessee, but my understanding is you pretty much completely grew up in California, yes. going to uh, Crespi Carmelite High in Encino. Tell me a little bit about growing up and, and uh, your high school years. My father uh, was in the Air Force early on. He, he was a lieutenant and uh, he flew aircraft, uh, B-52 bombers in Korea and and other places crashed a couple of times. He married my mother um, and started his married life. Uh, he was from Kentucky and they, they moved out to California. My father actually was on vaudeville for a while. He was a six foot four opera singer who, um, who played a character and called the Song of Norway. Um, and then it, uh, um, that's where I got my middle name, Ricard, which is why I'm called Rick now. Uh, I'm not really a Rick, I'm a John, <laughs> believe it or not. But anyway, <clears throat> moved out to California and there was a lot of baseball, you know, that was beginning for me back there when I was six years old. By eight years old, I was playing Little League Baseball. Um, everybody, I just loved it. My cousins were umpires in the league that I played in. Uh, they said every time I struck out, I cried. They were probably right because even when I struck out at the major league level, I cried. 
<laughs> so um, anyway, though, but I, I fell in love with baseball when my mom and dad used to take me to what they call a drive-in movie theater. Have you ever been to one? Sure have. Yeah, yeah you, you, you park your car up at an angle. It was always a, a double matinee or something like that. But in between, they would give highlights of the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Yankees playing in World Series baseball. And that's where I fell in love at eight years old with baseball. And I told my mother, I remember at the drive-in movie theater that um, uh, someday I was going to be a major league baseball player. So she just kind of smiled at me and then took me to my first little league game. So uh, that's where I fell in love with it in the San Fernando Valley. I just, I couldn't ever eat, sleep, or think of anything but major league baseball. I wanted to be that player. So even in high school, when the, uh, my algebra teacher, Father Albert Culpitz, he said, you know, you, you, you failed your class and, and your, all your other classes. The only thing you passed is math. I said, well, maybe the numbers stick with me. I don't know, Father. I said, but someday I'm not going to need the math. I'm going to be a major league baseball player. And everybody kind of laughed at me. But that was my senior year in high school. And that was the year that I signed my first professional contract uh, for the Minnesota Twins, now, uh, who actually didn't get a chance to play high school ball till I was a, a junior because I didn't have a driver's license. I had to go out for track with my older brother because he's the only one that had a driver's license and the only way for me to get home. So I started running long distance track and it became uh, a part of my life was was running. I, I ran a 436 mile when I was a sophomore in high school and wow. a 205 half mile. So they kept thinking by the time I'm a senior that I, I would probably, uh, you know, touch the four minute mile. So wow. um, that didn't work out because my junior year, when I got my driver's license, I had to go out for baseball. That's when I started playing baseball in high school. So my first year I hit 600. Uh, my second year, I think I hit uh, maybe a little bit like 620 or something. Uh, I just had that thing. We we played games with our our uh, the, uh, our coach who threw us batting practice, and I'd always try to hit the ball up the middle. Didn't realize that fundamentally that was one of the things that every young player should learn how to do. Hit the ball right back up the middle first. Don't worry about pulling it or hitting it the other way. Just hit it right up the middle. Um, I know I wasn't too big, so when the Scouts came to sign me uh, at the end of that uh, semi-pro season, they told my mother, don't change the furniture around in his room because he's probably going to be back within the next six weeks. He's just too small, and you know, you've got to be a little bit bigger to be a catcher. So um, my mom just kind of laughed at him and said, well, you don't know my son. So God bless her. She was right because Six weeks turned into 27 years yeah. of professional baseball, 24 of them in the big leagues. So um, I was always fighting all the negativity in baseball at that time. Too small, can't do this, can't do that, can't hit home runs, you know, blah, blah, blah. I worked the fundamentals of catching. I had a, always had a pretty good arm and very aggressive, always hustling and that sort of thing to keep in good graces with the coaches and the scouts and everything. So I asked the coach at that time to send me to a league. I don't care how low it is, send me somewhere where I can play. So he sent me to Auburn, New York, and that's where it began, the NYP League. 
Um, I hit a little over 300, I think 304. I can't really remember, but I was MVP of the league, drove in 61 runs in 60 games. Uh, they, uh, they invited me to major league, uh, spring training Mm -hmm. and I hit like 400 there in, in spring training. So they were kind of forced to put me on the 40 man roster in the, at, at that time. I went back to Wisconsin Rapids. I hit 364. So since I was on the 40 man roster, Minnesota called me up. Didn't get a lot of at bats, but hit 500. And, uh, so I got off to a pretty good offensive start in, in professional baseball. Um, the following couple of years, I got called back up with Minnesota, went back to double A ball, won a double A uh, championship with that ball club. So I was starting to learn the defensive side of my position at that time, too, how to block balls, what to look for, hitters and everything. I learned a couple of those things from guys like Jim Cott. And the wheels started turning and everything started to work out. So I had a couple years in the big leagues with Minnesota and got traded uh, for Danny Walton uh, to the New York Yankees. The Yankees uh, needed a, a really good defensive catcher who could hit a little bit. Uh, because Thurman Munson had hurt his arm. If you'll remember, Thurman used to throw the ball underhand to second base. He never threw the ball overhand. And he huh. was pretty darn accurate, but it threw and threw out enough runners to stay in the lineup. Thurman, if I had an idol, I'd have to say it would have to be Thurman Munson. He played the game tough, and he was a big-time clutch hitter at that time. And everybody loved him and respected him, and I was the number one his number one fan. Yeah. So when I did get my opportunities to play, um, I kind of focused a little more on the defense because I knew that was going to be, I'd, I'd have, to, in those days, a good catcher strength was one that could call a ball game and handle the big boys on the mound. Sure. So um, physically throwing guys out, I, I probably threw the highest I ever threw. Uh, I think it was 730. Um I threw out 16 out of 22 runners and that's where I caught Baltimore's eye. Yeah. And so after four years with the Yankees, you're in the fourth year when we were, uh, when the Yankees won the American league title that year, played Cincinnati lost four in a row in the world series to them. Uh, I, I was shifted off to the Baltimore Orioles in a 10 player deal. And, and it should have been 11 because Ron Guidry was supposed to be uh, the sixth guy in that deal. Uh, to go with us to the Baltimore Orioles and they, they needed a pitcher that night so uh, Billy Martin talked him into keeping Ron Guidry there to start that game for him because he had nobody else can you imagine what that would have done to the Baltimore Orioles because we went on a huge winning streak uh, you know at, at, at that era in Oriole baseball yeah, well, I, I mean, God, if Gidry had gone down there, there wouldn't have been enough Cy Youngs to go around in Baltimore. <laughs> I know. You're absolutely right. I mean, God, everybody would have had one. Um, real fast, I just want to ask you, in those years in Minnesota where you're, you know, you're kind of getting called up every year, I mean, that team is, even though they never won a World Series, they did go to the playoffs a few times. At one point, Billy Martin's the manager there, uh, you know, right. for a short stint for you. Um, yeah, the second year I was there, yeah. Yeah, and uh, – and, you know, there's guys like Harmon Killebrew and Tony Oliva and Rod Carew and, and the pitchers, like you mentioned, you know, Jim Cott. And I think Jim Perry might have been there for a year or two. Was. What, what was it like as a young guy? I mean, you're, you're barely 20 at that point. What's it like, you know, being around those guys? 
Well, you know, for the most part, I kept my mouth shut uh, <laughs> around the players uh, because, you know, back in those days, they didn't like rookies. If you came out on the field during batting practice and you walked through the infield, um, unless you were an infielder yourself, man, they would chastise you. Get the <laughs> hell off that field, rookie. You know, go around, you know. That's the way it was in those days. Nobody liked you because they knew you were there to take somebody's job. Right. And so. Um, and yeah, and, and when you're with the Yankees, I mean, you, you talked about Munson. Um, and again, at, you know, at one point, I guess in your last, you're there for like four seasons and uh, Bill Verdon and Ralph Houck are the managers early right. on. And then Billy's there that last year when you got traded about halfway through the season. Um, what was it like being with him again? I mean, what, well, what, was, what was it like with Billy? I, I, I really enjoyed Billy. He was a hard-nosed manager. You better hustle every single step of the way when you're playing for him because he was not afraid to get in your face. Sure. Fortunately, we got along beautifully. You know, I learned a lot by watching him how the game should be played. He got along well with Thurman, and Thurman was my idol at the time. All I had to do was talk to Thurman and hung out, you know. So the Yankees kind of brought me into the group early, you know. I had a special job, the Grand Poobah. They call me the Grand Poobah. Whenever the, all the team needed rides or cars to go someplace after the game, I had to make sure that I had them there in time, you know. <laughs> and, and that was part of my job, you know, make sure that everybody was where they were supposed to be and, if they needed uh, pizzas or, or or something, hamburgers or something, I always had to go get them. That was my rookie job. So, yeah. Oh, that's but funny. I didn't mind it so much because there were some great guys on that team. Sparky Lyle was one of them, you know, and, and I had a bunch of the young guys up there like Fred Stanley that became, you know, personal friends and stuff. But Thurman sure. was awesome. He was just so hard-nosed. It didn't matter how big anybody was coming in to break it up. Thurman would stick his head right in there. And he took a couple of bad shots, but he gave a lot too. And so I wanted to be just like him. So I pretty much followed in in, in footstep and, and learned the game the right way from one of the toughest guys in all of Major League Baseball, Thurman Munson. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that was a team of tough guys, man. Pinella, Chambliss. Metal. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> um I mean, that's like a football team um, it was it was great it was a great yeah. team and you had catfish on that team he had come over from oakland by that point right you had you yes. were over a year and, or two and catfish would not warm up a game ever unless i was catching him because he got into a nice little groove you know he's winning a lot of ball games obviously still the best pitcher in baseball but he he'd, he'd grab a baseball and he'd walk halfway to me before he started warming up, he says, here, spit on this ball for me. So, and then I'd spit right on the middle of the ball and he would rub it into the ball. He says, that's my good luck. So don't be late the next time I'm out here. All right. I said, okay. And he had another couple great years. He was another guy that was so much fun to be around and so good to live. He was a country boy, you know, from the cattle farms. And he, uh, he just had a, an approach to the game he started doing things differently than I had. You know, when I called a ball game, you know, and he didn't want to throw a pitch, he, he called me out and he said, listen, this is why I want to do this. Man, it was an encyclopedia of information for me, you know, and so I learned how to catch Catfish Hunter and 
um, Mel Stottlemyre and some of the great pitchers of the staffs back in those eras. And I just carried all that information with me as I went through my entire career. Yeah, oh, that, that's awesome. And, and you always hear with the Yankees, that, you know, they always bring back a lot of their old time players like you as a young catcher. Did guys like Yogi Berra and Elston Howard, were they kind of around in training camp or was yes. it pretty much they were? OK, Elston was one of the regular coaches. Yogi Berra would visit, you know, okay. and it was always nice to talk to Yogi because he talked about Whitey and how Whitey had a great change up to go with his two seam fastball. And, you know, and Elston. He, he didn't say too much about the fundamentals of catching, but all in ball games, you know, he would, he would talk about giving a good target, you know, being ready to block the ball, those kind of things, those kind of things you don't hear in the game anymore, Rich. Right. You know, they, you know, they all on their own programs go to one knee. It doesn't matter if the ball gets by you, nobody cares. Well, I tell you what, I know there's one person who cares that that pitcher standing on the mound because now there's somebody in scoring position if they haven't scored already on a pass ball. Right. So I became very self-conscious of catching the darn ball. Right. And making sure that you've got to keep it as close to that strike zone as you possibly can and make strikes of those that you could. So yeah. I learned the fundamentals of catching from a pretty good organization of catchers when you talk about Thurman Munson and Yogi Berra and a lot of the other guys. Even Fran Healy was a pretty good instructor in those days. Sure. That's amazing. Um, that's fine. Well, and then and then like you say, you get you get traded to Baltimore, where you would spend basically the next decade. Um, Earl Weaver's the manager. They've at that point they had been in four series, like in the last decade, one, two, lost two. Palmer's yeah. the ace. Um, and you come in, and that's an interesting team. Brooks Robinson is still playing. He's old, obviously, but he's yeah. still playing. Uh, you've got Palmer winning 20 games. You've got Wayne Garland winning 20 games that year. And yeah. you've got Reggie Jackson in the one year between his Oakland and New York runs. He's with the Orioles that year. Obviously, Earl Weaver is always an interesting guy as manager. What was it like walking into that locker room? Well, when you talk about the first guy that you had that you had to confront was the manager Earl Weaver, and he was never a warm and fuzzy guy. Right. You know, <laughs> he introduced himself and said, yeah, "Yeah, I'll get you in the lineup, but right now uh, my catcher is swinging the bat pretty good, so I'm going to stick with him for a while. But you'll get your chance somewhere down the road." So the first eight or nine days, I didn't even sniff the lineup. And I started to get a little depressed because I just came from the Yankees who were in first place. Right. The Orioles were in second place, 12 games back. So <laughs> there goes my ring. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but uh, Earl was one guy you better pay attention to because he was never going to say anything good about anything that you did well. Right. He, was, he felt like that's what you were getting paid to do, to play well. And so you drop a ball, even just warming up on the side, you you knew you were going to hear from Earl from the dugout, Jesus Christ, Dempsey, catch the ball, catch the ball, you know? <laughs> and so everybody on the team had to, you know, toe the line when it was, when they were around Earl, he was by far the best manager that I ever played for. Mm. Miserable human being to have <laughs> to deal with on a personal level. No way. But after, you know, through the years, I learned to deal with him, you know, and how to approach him and how to talk to him. But he was never, ever going to pat me on the back about anything that I did. And I, 
you know, I, I became a pretty good defensive catcher. Nothing got by me. I threw out most of the runners, you know, and, and so, um, you know, he was very happy with having me in the lineup. Palmer wouldn't go out and pitch unless I was in the lineup because he knew that when he needed to pitch out of the strike zone, he knew the ball was never, ever going to get by me. So we had a good relationship for a long time. I know we had a young pitcher that came up, Dennis Martinez, who for me was the best rookie pitcher I ever saw come to the big leagues. He had four of the nastiest pitches you ever want to see. Fastball moving, curveball, nasty, slider, hard breaker, change up, great speed. He had great command. So Earl put me out there with him for a couple of years until he got his confidence and everything. And so he was end up complained to Earl one day. Uh, he wanted to change catchers because I was always coming to the mound telling him, you know, you can't throw that pitch in that situation. Why do you want to throw him four different pitches when you can get him out with your fastball? So, you know, so Earl says, okay, geez, I'm going to, I'm going to let the you know, L Rod Hendricks catch you. So, for the next two starts, Elrod went in to, to catch him, and he didn't win either one of his starts. So Earl called me back into his office along with Dennis, and I thought I was going to get chastised for something, right. you know, because he never said anything good. But his way of saying something good is that, Dennis, listen, I went to the books, and I saw you were, you were 42 wins and 20 losses with Dempsey catching. Dempsey's going to catch you for the rest of my life as long as I'm an Oriole manager. Don't you ever come in my office again and, and complain about nothing. Now, both of you get out of here. He never said a word to me the whole time, but he wanted to. That was his way of letting me know that he appreciated what I did with Dennis. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. Two games over 500. I was, we were locked in for the rest of our careers there. Yeah. He, I, I read some great quotes of, of his, um, I guess at one point, Palmer and DeSensei's were kind of, there was like a little bit of a feud, you know, a couple balls might've gotten past DeSensei's, Palmer, you know, kind of showed him up a little bit. And uh, at one point, somebody asked Earl about it and he said, um, I hope they kiss and make up. The judge gave me custody of both. <laughs> I just talked to Jim yesterday. He was an amazing pitcher. You know, probably the one of the most cerebral pitchers I've ever been around. And I remember catching his first game. And he said to me, he says, listen, whenever I get behind in the count, I don't care what it is. I want you to set one inch off the outside corner and call for the fastball. I said, well, that's pretty simple, you know. So that's all I did was when he got behind in the count, this guy could hit my pocket. I mean, right there in the middle, 99% of the time on the outside corner down and away. That's why he was such a great pitcher, won 20 games, eight times, two, three Cy Young awards. You know, he, he was amazing. The command that he had with a, with a really kind of a, kind of a big windup way over the head, big leg lift, you know, but boy, when he got to this point where he made that good turn, he was right to the pocket of the glove. Yeah. He was the easiest guy I ever had to catch. And I had yes. some pretty good stats. Wow. That, that's, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. Three, three Cy Youngs and, and three World Series titles over three decades. Yeah. I think 
I think I read he's the only pitcher to have won a World Series game in three different decades. It's pretty amazing. Wow. I didn't even remember that, but yeah. you're right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and, and that team, in, in addition to the just ridiculous pitching staff, which obviously, you know, we've talked about a few of the guys, but also, you know, Mike Flanagan and Scott McGregor, these are two guys who win 20 games and, you know, uh, Flanagan wins a, a Cy Young and, and Steve Stone had a couple of big years and won a Cy Young. Funny uh, story about Steve Stone, if you don't mind my throwing it in. Let's hear it. We picked him up from the White Sox um, at the at the start of a season, um, his very first game. He he was throwing a hell of a ball game and a big sweep and curveball. He and Boddicker were very much alike in the kind of uh, pitch selections that they had. Um, we got into this game. There was men on second and third. Uh, there was one out. And a right-hand hitter up, I forget who it was, and two strikes and no balls was the count. So I called for the curveball in the dirt because I knew this guy wasn't a very good, uh, very disciplined hitter. So Steve steps off the mound. He throws his arms up. What the heck are you calling? You know, come out here. So I come out to the mound, and I said, he said, listen, I'm not going to throw a curveball in the dirt. Let it go to the backstop have the run score to tie the game and have the winning run at third base with less than two outs. I've been through that too many times before. So I looked up, and I said, Steve, listen, I mean, you're good, but you're not good enough to throw the ball by me. I don't care where you put it. You're not going to throw the ball by me. He said, I said, throw your curve ball right here in the dirt. I guarantee this guy is 90% going to swing at it. He says, okay, this is on you. Throws the curveball in the dirt. The guy swings at it. I block it, and we go to the next hitter. He pops up to left field, and Steve Stone, who never won more than 12 games in any season he was pitching as a regular pitcher, as a starter. He won 25 games and only lost seven. Cy Young Award winner and pitched in the All-Star game. And even to this day, you know, we still laugh about how well he pitched out of the strike zone, more so in the strike zone. And he, that was something that a lot of people never worked on, you know, uh, throwing the ball like curveballs a foot in front of home plate, you know. Sure. Uh, it, it works when you've got a guy that, you know, when he gets, even if the guy took it, he could come back and get himself back in a better count, you know, under those circumstances too. But we had a lot of fun together watching him, you know, win 25 games. And and you guys are on this run. You've you know you've joined the Orioles. You guys are on this run. You're you're you know you're having these winning seasons, but you're coming in second, third, fourth. You know to the Yankees and a few other. Yep. Seventy nine comes around, and this is amazing. I mean, you know, we've been talking about Earl Weaver because of rain delay, rain outs and stuff. You only play one hundred and fifty nine games instead of one hundred sixty two. He starts one hundred and forty different lineups in one hundred and fifty nine games. That's got to be. Right. He was a platoon manager. He came up with that program maybe three or four years before that. Yeah. All of a sudden, like John Lowenstein and Renicky, you know, kind of splitting and he's working Lee May yep. in, he's working Pat Kelly in and, and, you know, and obviously it worked. And in, in 79, you guys win over a hundred games. Uh, you go to the playoffs, you beat the angels, you go to the series. It, one of the most exciting series, you know, of all time, 79. 
versus the Pirates. Obviously, that's the We Are Family team. Obviously, it comes down to a game seven. You've got Mike Flanagan, who's the Cy Young Award winner that year. Um, and, uh, and, and it comes down to game seven. Um, and uh, is it Willie Stargell hits the dramatic home run off McGregor uh, in maybe the sixth inning, I think, to kind of put the game away. T- tell me a little bit about that. I mean, the frustration with losing that first series. Well, yeah. The, you know, at the very beginning of every World Series, they introduce the starting lineups and every team comes out on the first and third base line, right? Sure. So I go to the top and I say, you know, I shake Earl Weaver's hand and I look over at Chuck Tanner and I say, Chuck, I said, we can get this series over with really quick. Oh, how's that? I said, every time you and your big boys gets on base, let them try to to run. So I said, oh, we can get you. I said, we'll see. So <laughs> I threw out the first three guys, Marino, Jackson, and Parker, where they're three big base stealers back in those days. And I blew them away. I mean, there was no chance. They didn't even need to slide. Right. So as the series went on, we got up three to one. And all of a sudden, I noticed they're not running anymore. Marino get on base, you know, Park, I mean, the third baseman, what was his name? Oh, Bill Madlock. Madlock, you know, they let him hit. And all of a sudden, I realized, you know, they're starting to edge their way back into this series after they win the second game, uh, the third game. And then um, then we're up three to t- three and two uh, mm-hmm. still. And I just had this bad feeling that they weren't going to give me those easy outs anymore. Right. So we were going to have to figure out. They had the best hitting team in baseball at that time. And we pretty much handcuffed them. And I lost control of that game. You know, it taught me a huge lesson. Shut your mouth. Don't challenge the other team to do things. <laughs> Sooner or later, they're going to they're going to change on you. So um, I, I thought about it for a couple of years. And I, and I said, you know, I've got to take the blame for this because I know what inspired Chuck Tanner not to try to steal bases later on in that series because he was giving up really important outs. They got the momentum and came back and beat us. So it was tough to deal with that. We are family bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Uh, So um, at that point, I I stopped talking, you know, like that in in baseball and quit challenging people and just let them go ahead and make their own mistake. Yeah, (laughs) that's funny. I I had not heard that story. That's funny. Uh, Funny now. Probably wasn't funny then. And, and, you know, at this point, obviously Eddie Murray is a star and, and, you know, kind of putting up 30 and hundred year, you know, 30 home run, hundred RBI plus years. And then, you know, starting in kind of 81, 82, Ripken starts to come into the lineup and he starts to produce and, you know, and, and that pitching staff is still together. Dennis Martinez, like you talked about Palmer getting older, but still, you know, still effective Flanagan McGregor, um, Tippy is P- Tippy Martinez pitching really well out of the pen. Um, yeah. And that, that's something that the, the, with Baltimore, there's always a lot of talk about the starting pitchers, which totally makes sense. But yeah. guys like Stoddard and Tippy and Don Stanhouse. Uh, Sam, guys- don't forget Sam. Sammy Stewart. Sammy Stewart. He was, he could do anything. One of the yeah. most talented, versatile pitchers you're ever going to meet in the game. He could start, he could long relief. He could short relief, like crazy off the field. Yeah, I give it to you. 
And, you know, Weaver's obviously had this, you know, long, successful run and he retires after the 82 season. And then, and then the next year you've got a new manager, Joe Altabelli, yep. who he, he had been at Rochester, right? So probably a lot of the guys on the team. Yeah, he was, he was a that. great AAA manager, developed so many young players for the Orioles. And right. then they gave him a chance that he fully deserved. If Earl Weaver was going to retire, then Joe Altabelli had to be the guy to replace him. And, their personalities were like night and day. Sure. Earl Weaver, Jesus Christ, make the ball hit the outfield grass. Demony Christmas. Can anybody get on base on this team? You know, blah, blah, blah. And so, um, but anyway, it was tough. Joe came in and Joe was just not only a great baseball mind, but he was just nice and easy to get along with. He actually would talk to you on occasion. So, you know, um, <laughs> He was a pretty good guy to have there at that time. We were all veteran guys. We knew how to play. We knew how to play together. We knew the fundamentals of the game. Joe took over, and you know what? He let us play baseball, and uh, we gave him a championship. Uh, but it, it may not have turned out that way if anybody else had had taken over that job. Yeah, and that a couple of thing, things about that team. So that's that's 83. You guys play the White Sox in the first round of the playoffs. I couldn't believe it when I saw the stats. Every now and then something just jumps off the page at you. In four games, the White Sox scored three runs. Um, and then we and then played you play- great defense. Yeah. That was our defensive series that took us to that last game. Yeah. And and then and then you play uh the Phillies, and that's you know, that they had brought over a bunch of it was like, you know, not only Pete Rose, but also it was like Joe Morgan and uh Tony Perez, a bunch of guys who had been on that big red machine. Um you beat them and you've got some new blood in the pitching staff. You've got Boddicker, who obviously would go on to become a 20 game winner, Storm Davis. Um, you're the World Series MVP. You bat 385. You hit four doubles. You only played five games in the series. Um, and another stat and a home run. Don't forget that. Home run, couple <laughs> RBIs. Absolutely. Um, what what was that feeling like when you guys when you guys wrapped it up? We you had know, a in- philosophy. You know, and, and this comes from Ray Miller, the pitching coach. Yep. First pitch strikes. First pitch strikes. You know, when you can read a pitcher at his fundamentals and he keeps missing away, like I like say a right-hander to a right-hander, and he keeps missing away, 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 and he's even if he's this far off the outside corner where you just can't get those pitches called strikes all the time, you know, I it, there was there wasn't much I could say to them. I wasn't going to tell them how to hold their curveball, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. All I could tell them was it's common sense to know that your release point is the most important part of your delivery. Where's that ball coming off your fingertip, and where's your body? You know, so it was easy to say to them, "Listen, you need to make a better turn. Show me one number on your back." Mm. So I'm in a position where, you know, I can talk to these guys and they don't always agree with everything I say, but most of the stuff they do. And so getting the guy to make a better turn takes the arm back farther by itself where the hitter can't see the ball. Okay. And it changes where your release point is as long as that front shoulder isn't flying out. And if you make a better turn, then boom, you stop right there in the middle of home plate. And boom, here comes the here comes the ball. Sure. So that worked more than anything else. Make a better turn. Make a better. So 
sometimes the ball would rise a little bit. That meant that they're dropping their elbow down below the shoulder level and you're pushing the ball up in the air. Hmm. So sometimes, hey, speed up your delivery a little bit. You're wasting too much time thinking back there. Your infield's going to sleep and, and everything, and you're not getting you're not getting to your all of them when you work with them as much as I did in the bullpens and in between starts and all that much. You, you, you develop a good relationship of, of what to do when all of a sudden you do it in the bullpen and all of a sudden you're right there on that outside corner. Hey, you remember what you, you, you did this the other day in the bullpen? You, you made a, a better turn and you're right on the corners. Boom. They were always ahead in the count. You're absolutely right. And that's, that's what happened in that series is we just plain out pitched them. Yeah. And they made a mistake. I might throw in there that. The one guy on our team you never wanted to throw at, guess who that might have been? I'm guessing Eddie Murray. Absolutely Rip. right. Good yeah. guess because Eddie would never get mad, never saw him in a fight, never even say said a thing to anybody for throwing at him or knocking him off the plate. He would get back in that batter's box and go into a coma of just total concentration on seeing the ball and hitting it. It didn't matter whether he hit it down the left field line, left-handed or the right field line, right-handed. It didn't matter. He was going to get you. Right. And they threw at him a couple of times. I'll never forget the shot. He hit at old Comiskey park in right center field. He hit it on top of the roof after they hit him one at bat. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We went on Japan on a tour after we won the world series and they threw it. Four guys on our team, myself, Singleton, um, Ripken, and I was the fourth guy because they must have been there a day that I hit one of my home runs. They <laughs> thought I was a home run, but they would throw at you. They would hit you. And they made the mistake of hitting Eddie and won it back. And he got back in there. He came back in the next time. And you know how Eddie could get back left-handed? He hit this ball. There was no way to measure how far it went. It went completely out of the ballpark, over the grandstands, and over where the the uh, all the media people would watch the game instead of it. It went completely out of the stadium in the parking lot. They found it in a koi pond about 100 yards past the ballpark. Can you imagine? That ball might have gone 600 feet. Yeah, it right. beat Mickey Mantle. Eddie was amazing. Yeah. You know, how he could lock in and make you pay for any kind of disrespect you showed him. <laughs> yeah. And like you say, didn't talk, just, just, you know, kind of clocked. No, you, and, you know, uh, he didn't, Eddie didn't get, you know, that way. Yeah. Eddie was not a fighter. Not that he couldn't fight because he was a pretty big boy. He just never let it get that into his head that much. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so you guys win the series and and Altabelli's the manager now. And you know, the next year Boddicker has a has a good year. And and you guys are, you know, kind of eight games above 500, but you're in fifth. I mean, that's how yeah. tough the American League East was all of a sudden. Um, and then for the first time, I, I mean, I haven't gone through and looked at it, but in 86, you guys have a losing record. Uh, it might be the first time in your career, if 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 I'm first thinking. time since I was there, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and you're you know, and and that's under Weaver. Um, and then the next year you go to Cleveland 
And the, the Indians, it, it's an interesting season in Cleveland. Six straight, at, at, this, at this point, the American League East had seven teams. And six straight years, a different team had won it, Cleveland being the only one that didn't. Yeah. In 86, they have a winning record, and everybody's thinking, this is the year. We've got Joe Carter. We've got Corey Snyder, Pat Tabler, Julio Franco, and this is going to be the year. You come into that lineup, the one problem is the pitching. I mean, I actually couldn't believe it when I saw it. I mean, some some world-class pitchers, but not that year. The the highest number of wins on the roster was seven uh, by a pitcher. I know. And you had Tom Candiotti. You had Negro and Carlton, Swindell. Um, but I mean, the ERAs were all in the fours and the fives. What was it like that year? First of all, you're, you're catching legends, Negro and Carlton, obviously the end of their careers. What was it like catching those guys? And also between Candiotti and Negro, what's it like catching knuckleball pitchers? Well, Candiotti had the, the hardest and toughest knuckleball to catch of any pitcher that ever threw that pitch. Okay. Sure. I was amazed he had a better knuckleball than a lot of guys had fastballs, mm. but it was very, very hard to read that. I have to throw this in because I know I was the newcomer to the ball club and especially the pitching staff, but there were certain people that the pitching coach would not allow me to warm up. And that was my forte. That's mm. how I learned how, you know, what their pitches did and, and what they were doing. I think that had an effect overall, um, you know, on my relationship with the pitching staff and all of them, I think were just a year too late getting there, you know, uh, myself included. Okay. Uh, Pat Corrales was a good enough manager. He had done some good things with the ball club at that time, but that year just completely got out of control. Right. And we started losing a lot of what, but a lot of it also too, you know, when when you've got that good a pitching staff and uh, and some good players in the lineups and everything that could put runs on the board, you have to play good defensive baseball. And it might have been, you know, one of the the lower, not that they were terrible defensively, but we gave away too many outs. That's right. the bottom line. We didn't turn double plays when we had to. We missed right. balls here and there. Um, it was a, a camaraderie that there wasn't very good on that ball club. Mm. So, um, you know, I thought the general manager wasn't really a heck of a guy. You know, you know, I called him, I said, listen, I, I I know that, uh, you know, that was uh, the year of collusion. Right. And I said, I realized that you don't want to spend a lot of money. So listen, I'll play for you for a minimum salary. And that's what kept me in the game because I don't think they wanted a guy that was 39 years old, you know, and keeping young kids down in the minor league and wasn't playing every day at the major league level, you know? So uh, I'd made myself financially attractive and I got another year in the big leagues. I was out for the last couple of weeks of the season um, I didn't know there was a rivalry between the Kansas City Royals and the Cleveland Indians. Who hmm. would have known of a rivalry between those two teams? But there was a know huge that. rivalry. Okay. So Scotty Bales, you know, our best left-handed pitcher is throwing. Mm-hmm. Bo Jackson's on third base. There's only like one out. So there's a chopper back to the mound to his first base side. And he kind of takes a tenth of a second too long to field the ball. 
I know Bo is coming. Right. You can you can bring this up on your cell phone. Bo Jackson hits Rick Dempsey at home plate in Cleveland, blah, blah, blah. And you'll see the whole thing. Yeah. I had a tenth of a second to make up my mind. Was I going to go down and try to block him? 235 pounds of world-class speed. Right. I was 175 at the time. Right. Or do I want to go up in the air and let him hit me on the bottom half, and I might be able to survive that because I can roll out of a hit um, with the best of them. So right at the last second, you'll notice when you see it that Bo starts to go down about knee high, and I can't get down with him, you know, catching the ball up in the air here. So I jumped up just about six inches off the ground, and that's that's what put me over his shoulder. And we, he hit me damn hard. He ended up breaking my thumb because it got caught inside that little strapping kind of the catcher's mitt that didn't give. And it was laying on my wrist. And I said, damn, it's never been back that far before. <laughs> I think yeah. it's broken. Yeah. So, um, you know, the only good thing about that hit at home plate after I survived it for the, for the most part, it wasn't career ending, was that I held him to less yards than Bosworth did. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that was it. Uh, Bo was a great guy, though. You know, I knew I was going to get hit because that's just part of the game. He wasn't going to let up on me for any reason at all. But anyhow, yeah, I was, yeah, I was, I was just going to uh, say that was that. the end of my Cleveland. That was my last game in Cleveland. And thank God it was because the rest of it was beautiful after that. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. And I want to you brought up something that I do want to ask a question about and then and then talk about the transition to L.A. because it's a great, you know, kind of. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that the, I, I don't know if it was the pitching coach or the bullpen coach, but they didn't want you warming up the guys before the games. Why would that be? Uh, that's that's interesting. You know what? That's that. That's, it was just one of those things where um, sometimes um, even coaches get a little bent out of. Um, out of shape when certain players come to the team gotcha. that, you know, with more experience and more championships and all that, you know, so I, I know that the, the pitching coach didn't dislike me. I never gave him a reason to dislike me, right? but he wasn't going to let me come in and get acclimated to a pitching staff where he knew I would probably want to take control of those guys that I got opportunities to catch. Interesting. You know, so it, it just didn't work out, you know, right. no hard feelings. And, you know, and it all happened for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, God. Yeah. Yeah. So so you you break your thumb, you're done for the year and you're not going to go back to Cleveland. Well, the <laughs> and, thing was, I thought long and hard about retiring at that point because I didn't know, think I was going to get an opportunity with very many teams around Major League Baseball. I didn't sure. call any teams like that. I always I said to myself when I got home, I played this game for quite a few years, over 20 years at this point at the major league level. And I've never played on the West Coast for mm -hmm. any team. Um, so I saw Tommy Lasorda at a banquet and I said, Tommy, are there any openings with your ball club where you could use a guy? I know I'm not going to catch every day with Mike Sosha there. Pretty good catcher on his own. Uh, Mike says, oh, I'd love to have Tommy said, oh, I'd love to have you. I mean, uh, you know, you've been in two World Series already and divisional championships up the wazoo. And and I, I says, I can help you win, Tommy. He goes, 
okay, well, I'll, I'll talk to Fred Claire. Mm. That never happened. <laughs> I, a couple of weeks later, I still hadn't heard from anybody. So I decided one day I'm working in the yard, and you know, that little, that little angel or something whispers in your ear, go do it yourself. So I dropped the rake and I jumped in my car and I ran down to Dodger Stadium. I got there at two o'clock in the afternoon. And I asked the secretary, may I speak to Fred Clare if he's available? She said, well, he's in a meeting right now, so he won't be able to talk to you for a while. I said, that's OK, I'll wait. So I waited till three or four o'clock. I said, is Fred available yet? And he goes, well, no, he's in another meeting. I, I looked at the, the his door and I didn't see anybody come in or out. So I know it wasn't another meeting. <laughs> so at five o'clock she left and I asked again she said no he's not out of the meetings yet I says okay well I was too embarrassed to leave at that point I'm 40 years old and I've never given up at anything in my life so I'm just going to sit there and wait so at seven o'clock at night I've been sitting there for five hours now the door cracks open I said Fred I said listen I'm sorry to put you in this position but I've never given up at anything in my life. I said, just listen to me for 30 minutes. If it doesn't fit your program, I, I'm ready to retire and go into my minor league managing career. Right. He says, okay, come on in. So we talked for about an hour. And I said, Fred, this is what I will do for you. I said, I'll hit a home run every 24 at bat. I'll drive in a run every five at bats. I'll turn your pitching staff around along with Mike Sosha. We'll turn this pitching staff around. We'll win the division because you guys didn't pitch so good last year. And he says, yeah, that's true. And I said, we'll win the playoffs in the National League. And we'll play in the World Series. And I'll catch the last pitch. And I'll give you the ball. He says, God, God I should at least invite you to spring training. I said, yeah, that'd be a smart thing to do. But listen, I'm telling you, if I don't have a good spring and I don't play well, don't feel bad because you gave me a chance. And if I don't perform well, you don't have to feel bad about sending me home. I, I would go happily and go into the rest of my career. He says, OK, so on the last day of spring training, I had a hell of a spring. I drove in over 10 runs in a part time position and yeah, you know, I hit a home run and all sorts of stuff. I, I, I showed everything, caught well, blah, blah, blah. Sure. He comes in my room and he says, Rick, he says, listen, can you go to AAA ball? Because I don't know what to do with Alex Trevino at this point. And I haven't found a spot to put him yet. And I said, Fred, don't feel bad. I said, I, pr I promised you that I would not say anything and I would go home and I would retire if I didn't make your ball club out of spring training. Well, they had put me on the other side of the, of the, the clubhouse with the rookies and everything that were up, the, you know, the non 40 man roster players. Uh, that kind of, So it didn't bother me. I had a good time. I never let stuff like that get me down. So about an hour later, he comes back into my room. He goes, you made the ball club. Well, I, I ended up having 160 at bats, uh, I drove in, what was it, 30, exactly 30 runs. 30, yeah. And I hit, what, six or how many seven. home runs? Seven home, home runs. So seven. Seven home runs, yeah. I yeah. hit seven home runs, almost the exact numbers that I had promised. We played in the playoffs. 
We won the National League, and we played in the World Series. Mike got hurt in the second game, and I took over the rest of it. I caught the last pitch, and I had that baseball signed by every coach and player that played in that World Series, and I gave the ball to Fred. Oh, it's perfect. It couldn't have worked that. It would have been a trillion to one chance that all those things would have worked out as well as they did. Yeah, you know, unbelievable. And making that prediction. Um, and so he, he called me a couple of years ago, wanted me to come speak at a golf uh, a club that he that he was a member of, um, talking about the Dodgers in 88. And so he says, I have two things to tell you. I go, what's that? He goes, I took that ball you gave me. I've, I've had it on my mantle since 1988. And he says, I had to give it to the Hall of Fame. I go, okay, that's that's a good idea. That's a better spot for it. A lot of people will get to see it. He goes, yeah. He says, what's the other thing you wanted to tell me? He says, the ball was worth six and a half million dollars. <laughs> I said, Fred, you're just lying. That's too much money for a baseball. He goes, no, we were the worst World Series team on paper in history, playing the best World Series team on paper in history. And we beat them in five games. Oral Hershiser, 59 consecutive scoreless innings. And Kurt Gibson hits the biggest home run in, in baseball history. Yeah. You know, bring us back and to win that first game, you know. <laughs> it was a pretty special time because the Dodgers are just the most classiest organization in baseball. And they never forget anybody who does something for them. Mm. That's cool. Well, and and that year, so so first of all, yeah, I, I have to ask you about you in in particular. Um, you in Game Five, the last game of the series, uh, where you know obviously if you guys win, it's over, and you come up with a double in the sixth inning that basically ends the game, which basically ends the series. What's that like? When you're standing on second base, and you know, like I think I just clinched it, or we just clinched it, but my hit just clinched it. What's that you feeling? Know, it, it's funny because you can look at my numbers ever since I became an Oriole. The the numbers went down. Earl Weaver took me out on the field one day, and he put me up close to home plate, and he says, "You see that yellow foul pole down the left field line?" I go, "Yeah." He goes, "Hit me some home runs, you'll play every day." So I went from a really good fundamental hitter that had a chance of hitting 300 plus in the big leagues um, to a, a really a non-threat, let's put it that way, a non-threat. Wasn't that I was the worst non-threat, but it was. But I didn't become the offensive player that I should have become. And so it was, it was crazy that ever since that first game in the 83 World Series, uh, actually, it was a second game that I hit a double off the right field wall that drove in the winning run for us. Uh, what would have been the, the go ahead run for us. And we win. It took a 2000 pound weight off my back. I never worried about batting average anymore. I didn't care. I just went up there. I was a lot more relaxed. And in playoff and World Series situations, that was my cup of tea because I don't know. Why I just kind of relaxed and then, you know, kind of watched the way they pitched me. Hudson always pitched me the same way, fastball in, breaking ball away, fastball in. Boom, hmm. boom, like every at bat. 
All I did was look for the fastball on the third pitch. I hit four doubles and a home run. Yeah. They never changed. They were tough on, on Eddie Murray. They, you know, they wouldn't give him anything to hit until the last game. And then uh, Cal Ripken, they were really tough on him. So, you know, that's it, just the way it worked out. And so for me, especially in playoff and World Series, then I became the hitter I should have been. Yeah. It's, I it's, it's, if I had a chance to say what I would want to do, I would have picked playoff and World Series. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you're, you're 233 lifetime hitter. Postseason, you bat over 300 in your six series. Uh, I mean, incredible. Um, and then, uh, and the other thing I wanted to, yeah, I did want to talk about Oral Hershiser. That year is, is one of the most incredible years. I mean, he's the Cy Young award winner. Yeah. He is the MVP of the national league championship series. Then he's the MVP of the world series. And like you point out, he had that 59 inning shutout streak, which first of all, he's breaking his own. I mean, Don Drysdale was a Dodger and was the announcer for the Dodgers. So Drysdale's calling those games as Hershiser is getting closer and closer to the record and he gets it in his last start of the year. He goes 10 innings in a 16 inning game and breaks the record. I mean, what, as you're, as a catcher, I mean, I know it's you and Sosha, you know, yeah. kind of splitting time, but what's that like as a catcher? You're just watching this thinking this guy's, this is unstoppable. You know, he kept me in all the entire season. Yeah. I have never, I've caught 16 Cy Young award winners. I've caught guys that never got Cy Youngs that were incredible in a lot of seasons. But you see how much shorter this finger, my index finger is than my middle finger. Yeah. Oral has that. He mm. has that. And when he threw a two-seam fastball, I've never seen anything like it. I totally had to adjust where I put the glove because if I would have sat where I wanted it to end up, he would have never, he'd have missed me by this far every time. Wow. I've never seen a two-seam fastball. I see him move about so much at times, you know, and late in the in the strike zone. But mm -hmm. his was more like this. I mean, he would throw the ball purely on the inside. I give the target on the inside corner. Everybody thought I was trying to pitch the hitter in. I was trying to pitch the hitter away. Hmm. His ball would break that much to the outside corner. You could tell the hitter it was coming. In fact, I did that a few times. Don't tell Oral. <laughs> but I I would say, yeah, I didn't want him to walk a guy. You know, in a certain sense, I said, I'm, I'm going to have to throw you a nice fastball to hit. Be ready. You throw the two-seamer. It was as good as any cut slider from a left-hander that you ever saw because it moved huge. Wow. And it was impossible to hit. It was the most impossible pitch of any pitcher I ever caught. But what a year that was. Mike and I both caught three games. He had six shutouts in a row. It was totally amazing what he was capable of doing. Yeah. Oh, just, uh, just amazing to watch. I mean, that's, you know, look, all records are meant to be broken, but man, that's one that, you know, yeah. I'd, I'd like to see the guy. We're never going to see that in baseball in our lifetime. Yeah. Never again. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, and, and I have to ask since it's, you know, it's certainly if, if it's not the most iconic moment in baseball in the last 50 years, it's certainly in the top two or three, what's it like sitting on that bench when, you know, Gibson comes out of the tunnel and, uh, and goes up to bat in the, in the, uh, First game. Totally, uh, totally unexpected, of course, by every person that ever watched a baseball game. Right. 
He was limping around because he had a bad hamstring. It got infected somehow. He couldn't play. Uh, Then all of a sudden came the opportunity where he had uh, he had to nut up, you know, (laughs) to get in that bat. And if you watch the sequence of pitches, you could see how much Dennis Eckersley made a mistake not to read him better as a hitter. He could not get around on the fastball. Remember, he chopped a couple of them, went half jogging up the first baseline. If he'd have stayed with the fastball, Kurt couldn't have got around on it. Right. We had scouting reports from Mel DDA that every three and two counts to a left-hand hitter, Dennis Eckersley would throw the slider on the outside corner. Oh, wow. So, I mean, you know, that was his big pitch. So all it did was allow Kurt, who had trouble getting the fastball here, the, the slider allowed him to get the head of the bat out a little bit fronter out here. And if you could see, it doesn't even look like a very impressive swing. He just kind of one-handed it. Yeah. And it hit the perfect middle of the bat and drove it about 30, 40 rows deep in the right center field bleachers. Yeah. And the place erupted. We were invincible. Yeah. We were for the worst World Series team on paper and hitter. Nobody could beat us. We just had it. We had the camaraderie. We had, you know, the defense and everything. We knew we weren't a great team unless we played together. And right. that's one thing that team did. And I was on eight divisional championship teams, and that was my third World Series. And, you know, we they just had it. We had enough talent at each position to get the job done. And Fred Clare, you got to give him a lot of credit. Tommy also, but more so Fred, putting a team together by a general manager who believed in you, truly believed in you, even though he said, you know, you guys weren't the best talent, but there was just something I felt good about bringing John Shelby to the team, Rick Dempsey to the team, you know, Mickey Hatcher, a bench player. It's amazing. Uh, Danny Heap, Franklin Stubbs, uh, Dave Anderson. Those names just don't knock you off the table, you know? Yeah. And when you have a Mike Sosha, um, who's also a good game caller and could handle a pitching staff, you put us both together, we're unbeatable. Yeah. Unbeatable. I mean, I was worried because we had we had clubhouse, uh, or, you know, we go to a dinner, Tommy would set up, and we would talk about the upcoming series, the one about the New York Mets and, and you know, and then having to face the Oakland A's, who every guy in the lineup was a 40-home run guy, it seemed like. It was amazing. The, yeah. the, few, the few that weren't were guys that were – could steal a hundred bases, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I was a little nervous until we got to the series. I got in that second game uh, with Mike out, out of the lineup and you saw um, Conseco and McGuire both. They would come in and they'd open that front foot more so than I'd ever seen them. And mm. I wondered what the hell. And then when they took their practice, when you could see the meat of the bat, over the inside half of the plate. So they're obviously looking middle in. Right. So they can drive the ball. 
And right. this is something that maybe the hitting instructor got a lot of them to do because they all came up the same way. Hmm. Carney Lansford differently. He was his own hitter. Right. But all of a sudden we went through that first couple of times through the order and then all of a sudden they're pigeon toed. Now, what is that for? If you know, if you can read a hitter, they, the reason they turned that front foot in and the back foot was to keep the front shoulder in, mm. you know, to, to hold on. Now the practice swing goes over the middle of the outside half of home plate. Mm. So you knew when to pitch them in, you knew when to pitch them away, and it didn't matter. Helen Keller could call pitches with as long as she hit the right side of the plate. And that's one thing we had. We had... You know, you know, a pretty good pitching staff. Yeah. Um, who was that? Who was our closer? Jay, Jay Howell. Hey. Yeah. Okay. Jay gave up the one loss when McGuire came up and hit a home run. Right. And he threw a, he threw a fastball. I'm sitting on the outside corner. He threw a fastball that sailed into the happy zone, middle end. Boom. There it went. And he ended up losing. The very next game he came in. The same exact situation. Here's McGuire, game on the line, and he looked in for the signal, and I called fastball. And he goes, nope, come here. <laughs> what do you want, Jay? He says, you know, I threw that fastball to him yesterday, and he hit it nine miles. I said, yeah, oh, I was back there. I saw it. <laughs> I said, you know what? But that wasn't the same fastball that you usually throw. You let up a little bit. You pulled off to the left, to first base side, and the ball floated into the happy zone. Jay, fastball got you to the big league. That's why you're the best closer in baseball right now, and you're standing up here with a chance to win the World Series. You know, or give us a big lead in the World Series. Yeah. He, he was nervous. He turned around. He wound up, and he threw the fastball right on the outside corner, just a little above the knee. And Seiko pops it up. Then he goes home in the wintertime and writes a book about that confrontation that we had on the mound and what it was all about. He says, I never, I lost confidence in myself and Rick helped me find it back again. And it got us to the finish line. So that's uh, what relationships and precision pitching is all about. That's awesome. God, I didn't, I didn't know that story. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, and then, and then a couple more years with the, the Dodgers and you see, I mean, Ramon Martinez comes in and he's a 20 game winner. And then you're in Milwaukee for a year and you play with some pretty good, you know, Molitor is still there. Yant is still there. Willie yep. Randolph bats, you know, three thirty, Um, and then, and then you go back to Baltimore. Now at this point, you're, you're, you know, well into your forties um, and you're, they're playing at Camden Yards. They've, I think they've just moved to Camden Yards. Uh, but you you only stick around for a few games and then you retire. What you mentioned at the beginning that you quit because you were angry with Baltimore. What what yeah. was up at the end? Well, what it was is in '91. I'll go back to the Milwaukee Brewers. Sure. We were a game out of first place for the last month and a half of the season, mm -hmm. and we had lost 26 ball games with three, four, five, and six run leads. What do you think we needed? Closer. A closer. Yeah. And you know who they had in triple-A ball and they wouldn't bring him up? Doug Henry. Oh, wow. Okay. Tom Treblehorn was the manager of that team, and I kept saying, Tommy, 
we just we just need a a closer that can throw the ball over the plate because we're giving too many games away. We should have a four or five game lead in this division, and we're one game back for the last month and a half. They said they won't call him up. They think he's too young. It don't matter. I said I've seen nineteen year old guys starting in World Series. What are we worried about? Yeah, we should have won in Milwaukee also if we'd have just put. One more guy in that bullpen that could throw the ball over the plate. Right. We we would have won it, no doubt. They had a good enough team to put runs on the board, but that did not happen. What was that? Oh, I went back to Baltimore. Yep. And they seemed so excited. I called them to see if I could come back at the start of Camden Yard. Sure. And they were all excited. So I um, I said, listen, you don't have to – minimum salary, don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, that's fine. So I went back and about a, uh, a week before opening day, they called me in and said, um, we can't activate you for a week. I said, okay, uh, that's okay. I don't know why they, they, they had another catcher there that they needed to do something with or whatever. So I, I agreed to it. And then they called me in. Uh, in order to get activated, I had to, I had to agree to a proration of the salary. <laughs> it was, you know, seven games or whatever it was, eight games that I missed. They, they wanted to dock it. So, I don't know. I got a little upset with that. But more so than that, that didn't bother me so much because, uh, you know, that's the way a lot of teams were in those days. So. I ended up um, starting, I made the ball club in there after the first week they they activated me. And I started one ball game the rest of the season and had nine at-bats all year long. Mm. And I kept asking Johnny Oates, Johnny, what what's the problem? There's nothing. They just want these guys to play and blah, blah, blah. And I put their names in the lineup every, you know, all the day. I said, well, I mean, at some point, uh, you got to give me a chance to play somewhere. I mean, I'm too much history, you know, at least I mean, if I step all over myself, I can understand getting released, but you got to give me a chance. Yeah. So I knew they were trying to get me to agree to retire and I, and I wouldn't do it. I was, I said, there's no way if I'm not going to play, then I'm just going to sit here and be a good boy and, and, and let it run out and, and I'll I'll get my contract and that'll be it, because I knew if I if I said I'll retire that that's when the paychecks wouldn't come in anymore. And right. I didn't want to do that, so I just uh, I sat it out and then I went and asked uh, for um, I wanted to start my coaching career in the Oriole organization. Mm-hmm. So um, the general manager and the farm director uh, said, "Let's meet." on friday uh after the season was over okay said 11 o'clock i was there at 11 o'clock nobody else showed up so at that point uh fred claire had called me from the dodgers a hundred times wanting me to come and manage in the dodger organization and i kept saying no i've got to give the orioles the opportunity because i've been with them for the most time fred i'm sorry so after that last day, um, I said, well, 
I'm not too sure about this organization at this point. They're really in my corner there. I didn't think so at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, um, I took Fred Clare's offer to manage in Bakersfield and became the, fir- the worst first-year manager in the history of the game. <laughs> <laughs> I was terrible because I tried to be Earl Weaver, you know, kicking dirt on home plate, doing all sorts of crazy stuff and yelling at the kids and everything. I was so bad, I wouldn't have been surprised if Fred Clare released me, you know. Right. My second year, Fred said, listen, I'm going to move you up to AAA ball Albuquerque. I want you to manage there. But I want you to manage like Rick Dempsey, Mm. not like Earl Weaver, okay? I said, okay, we won the Pacific Coast League title, and I I was pretty happy with that. So we went to the playoffs two years in a row, and then uh, things got stuffy uh, up up at the major league level. And that was it. So then I started to do a lot of other things in Major League Baseball than manage. I ended up managing AAA ball with the Mets two years, made the playoffs a couple years with them. But in between, I was a, an advanced scout for Colorado. Interesting mm. job, but one that I can't see how anybody would want to do it, being up till 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning every night. <laughs> and doing I was the ballpark early. Wasn't fun. But then the Orioles called me back to coach for them uh, at the major league level. And I had jumped around first base, third base, bullpen, all sorts of stuff with them. And it just never worked out. I turned out being probably the only guy in the history of baseball that was ever hired three times to manage the Baltimore Orioles that got fired (laughs) before I ever put the uniform on three times. (laughs) (laughs) meaning meaning like when they brought you in as a coach that the thinking was you'd ultimately manage them uh well i don't know about that because the managers that they had were you know i interviewed but four times with the orioles i think oh oh i see you were interviewed four times and and i didn't get the job but then i was called by peter angelos on three different occasions Mm. And he said, Rick, you're going to manage the ball club next year. Two days later, Rick, I'm sorry, but uh, they talked me out of it. Who was that? Can't tell you. Second time, same thing. You're going to manage the ball club this year. Uh, Two days later, call you up. No, they talked me out of it again. So I won't get into it any deeper than that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just. uh, Then the third time I knew when Peter was just about ready to get to retire himself um, and turn the ball club over to his kids. He, 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 he said, listen, I really do want you to manage the ball club this year. And then I never heard back from him at all, but uh, that's the way it all ended. No hard feelings there too. And just a, a way uh, that things worked out, you know? Yeah. Let, let me ask you. Let me ask you a couple of quick questions, and then I want to hear about because I know you're working uh, among your many projects. I know you're doing something with Under Armour and the Baseball Warehouse. I want to hear yeah. about. That. And were, were there any pitchers? I mean, uh, you know, clearly, given the track record, you had a good relationship with you know with almost all your pitchers. But was there any like you always hear about? You know, Carlton and McCarver. Like you know, he was his personal catcher. Were there any pitchers where you were just like? you know, that picture was like, it's got to be Dempsey or I don't go on the hill that day. 
Well, uh, not in the Cleveland organization. They didn't know me well enough, and they didn't give yeah. me an opportunity to know the pitching staff there th that well either. Sure. Uh, but with Baltimore, um, you know, Jim Palmer, he uh, he wouldn't go out there. A lot of times he says, I'm not going to pitch unless Dempsey's in the, you know, the catcher. Mm -hmm. So Earl, Earl gave in to him out of bet, but there wasn't too many of them. Uh, uh, they, they, most of the guys that came up in the oral organization uh, were more acclimated to, uh, to um, throwing to the backup catcher because he was in triple, triple a ball with them. Okay. Uh, it evades me the name Skaggs? right now. Is it Skaggs? Skaggs. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Sure. <laughs> Skaggsy was a, a good defensive catcher, um, a good receiver, good game caller, maybe didn't have my arm or quickness behind home plate, but uh, he was pretty good. Sure, sure. So so tell me about um, this project you're working on with the baseball warehouse and, and Under Armour. Well, um, Matt Morris um, and my agent, Rick Oliver, had pretty good relationship. Uh, Matt Morris had, has already opened a couple of baseball warehouses of, you know, and working with a lot of young kids. But he called me um, maybe what, six months ago and said, listen, um, I'd like to have you with the baseball warehouse, Rick Dempsey's baseball warehouse. And I'm thinking, you know, I haven't been to work in a couple of years and it might be good to get back into the flow of things again. I've always enjoyed teaching younger players, you know, how to approach catching, not like a lot of major league catchers this day, but um, yeah, it, it worked out well in a couple of the appearances that I worked and I said, you know something, um, right now it's a pretty good business to be in. You can make a lot of money mm -hmm. um, doing this kind of thing. So the salary's never been something that I worried about too much is did I have the time to do it all and you know me and my wife I'm 73 we're we're going on 74 years old both of us and um, it's it's that time in your life when I need to be around her uh, we're empty nesters now our kids are all grown up and gone and have their own kids and so um, you know it was just one of those decisions I, I would have loved to have done it in a heartbeat but now I just have to think about how much time can I devote to uh, the baseball warehouse, Rick Dempsey's baseball warehouse, uh, as it is. So sure. I'm really going to have to maybe maybe twice a month get into our project. I've got a lot of good players uh, that, that will come in and do the coaching and stuff like that. You know, Mike Bordick will be on the infield. Al Bumbry will be the hitting instructor and stuff. And so. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, they can do pretty good because I've got all major league, ex-major league players, not just minor league guys. Cal Ripken Jr., uh, he's uh, our junior, junior. Cal Ripken's son mm. is is going to join us on the coaching staff. I'm sure he knows, you know, how to teach young players. He played uh, quite a long time in the minor leagues, never got a major league shot. But he's the one guy I would love to have around because um, – People really like him and they're impressed by him. And so um, it'll work out easily. Yeah, that's awesome. That sounds great.
Well, Rick Dempsey, I have I have to say it, it's been a pleasure, you know, sitting here listening to, you know, the, you know, your years as a young player coming up through Minnesota and, you know, backing up Thurman Munson and playing for Billy Martin and obviously, you know, the iconic years in Baltimore in the 79 and 83 world series where obviously you're the MVP and then the great story about the Dodgers. Uh, that's just such a, <laughs> that's just such a great, you know, kind of kick to the end of the career. Yeah. Uh, so it's been a real pleasure having you on chasing hardware. Thank you so much for your time. Richie, thank you very much. Anytime you need anything, you got my number. Awesome. Thanks Rick. Take care. All right, brother. You take care. And thank you for listening to chasing hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello, the Michael Stanley band brought us in and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. It feels like life. Come on. Life is like. Life is like. Life is like what it is. Life is like. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.